Welcome to Impact the World, the show for and about creatives, changemakers, and entrepreneurs. This is a conversation episode where a special guest shares with me what they are creating and the behind the scenes journey of their experience. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Impact the World, where my guest is the brilliant Shelley Tygelski. For those of you who tune in regularly to the show, it really supports us if you're able to subscribe on YouTube or on Apple Podcasts, wherever you're watching or listening. And leaving a rating or a review also helps us to reach more people as an independent show. Speaking to Shelley for today's show was many things for me, and I'm sure it will be for you, but one thing that Shelley reminds me of is that anyone who is a powerhouse in our world has usually gone through challenging or difficult experiences in order to get there. And yet a powerhouse is really what Shelley is, a powerful heart, a powerful mind, and a powerful organizer. And one of the most incredible things that Shelley did last year was she began a movement called pandemic of love. It started in March of 2022 and 2020 and very quickly spread across the globe. So getting to sit and talk to Shelley about the pandemic of love and the book that she has just released called Sit Down to Rise Up was a real treat inside the heart and the mind of somebody who has impacted the world in incredible ways and like the rest of us is living the human experience. Please enjoy this episode with Shelley Tygelski. We had a few minor technical issues in this show, but it's a wonderful conversation and we hope you enjoy. Shelley, thank you so much for being here today. It means a lot because, I mean, for a couple of different reasons. Number one, I love this book that you've created, but more than that, perhaps, and I know the book came on the back of that. I just love that in March 2020, when we were going into in many ways, a pandemic of fear, mm. you created a movement called Pandemic of Love. So I salute you for that. And thank, thank you for being here today to talk about that and many other things. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So Pandemic of Love, can you, for someone who's not met you before or didn't hear about the movement, could you just share a little about what it was, at what sure. compelled you to start it and how it took off? Yeah, well, so Pandemic of Love is, in its simplest terms, it's a mutual aid community that usually mutual aid exists in like micro hyper local communities but this actually became very quickly a global grassroots phenomenon which is incredible because it's proven that something like mutual aid which is really an exchange of goods and a redistribution of wealth and we can define wealth very in de very broad and different terms but it, it essentially has proven that mutual aid can be scalable and exportable and re replicable and really um, be built by the people for the people, not just in times of crisis, but as a safety net, you know, yeah. in everyday life. And so um, I was dabbling with, in mutual aid as a meditation teacher already leading a community in South Florida, which is where I'm originally from. And I was leading a community of about 15,000 meditators on Sunday mornings since 2015, um, every Sunday morning we would gather on the beach uh, in Hollywood and we would, Hollywood, Florida, not yes. California. And I've seen the photos of that. Yeah. They, they look incredible. It's phenomenal. It was amazing. It was such a great, again, grassroots community that grew from 12 girlfriends who wanted to learn how to meditate to, you know, just a gathering of, of perfect strangers who came together to form a community. Um, and so within that community, we started to, um, you know, just dabble in different types of mutual aid that were during times of crisis or during certain times of the year, like if it's back to school or during the holiday season or Thanksgiving, or if somebody was diagnosed with cancer or lost their job, you know, everybody would sort of rally around each other and we started to formalize that process. And so when the pandemic hit, in March of 2020, I, like everyone else, was sitting in despair, you know, thinking about, oh my God, lockdown. And first, of course, you think about how it pertains to your own life, right? Like yeah. how it pertains to 
um, the things that you had planned over the next, because we thought it was only going to be a couple of weeks, yeah, you know, we or did months. At the beginning, yeah. So we're like, okay, I have to move these things around or push this retreat off or this workshop I have planned. And then I started thinking, well, I had, my son was a senior in high school at the time. So I was like, oh, they're going to cancel prom and they're going to cancel graduation. And so you start to sort of expand that circle of consciousness to like other people too and how it's affecting their life. And I really already was very much in touch with many individuals in our community that were suffering pre-pandemic. We're barely making it, you know, we're living hand to mouth, living paycheck to paycheck, single parents, um, people who worked in the service industry, certainly who relied on tips and hourly wages to just make it through. And I knew that it was going to be a huge problem for them. Like I could already see that coming. Um, and I also knew based on what was unfolding on a daily basis that, you know, it was going to be a time of disconnection, but that people were really going to want to try to figure out ways to connect. So as a community organizer, as somebody who had a platform, I recognized um, not just in that moment, but really in the years leading up to that moment that I had a moral responsibility to actually organize and do something and use that platform to help as many people as possible and to create this redistribution of wealth, to be able to give people who have enough the opportunity to provide to individuals who don't um, and to help them fill the needs that they have, the basic essential human needs that we have and that many of us actually take for granted on a daily basis. And so um, I just, not being a very technologically savvy person, self-admittedly, I put up two simple Google Forms. One was called Give Help and one was called Get Help. And the forms initially were so simple that they didn't even ask like where you were from because I honestly just assumed that it would only be people from our community that would fill it out. And what happened was I posted it on like a Saturday night or Saturday afternoon, went to bed, woke up the next morning, and thought, okay, I'll just go in and see how much, how many people signed up on the sheets after I had posted this on my social media. And I literally spit out my coffee. Like it was all over my, my computer screen because I was like, oh my God, like there over 500 people had signed up to give help. And when I went into the get help page, you know, there were like 300 people already that had signed up. And so I started to scroll through and I was like, I don't even know who these people are, nor do I recognize any of these area codes for their phone numbers. And some had international numbers. So I was like, what is going on here? And then I looked at my phone and I had like text messages that said like, oh my God, Kristen Bell and, you know, post reposted your, your uh, video that you made and Maria Shriver did and Deborah Messing. And I was like, this is insane. Right. <laughs> this is crazy. But I think what happened in that first week was that as people were leaning into fear, mm. as they were leaning into this fear of the great unknown, Pandemic of Love was an opportunity for people to feel useful and for people to feel like, you know, I'm in control of the response and how I want to use this time and this kind of feeling that I'm having of the great unknown to, to respond in a way that actually is productive, yeah. right? And isn't like leading me down this like slippery slope into this black abyss of like the world is ending. Yeah. But rather, you know, if the world should end, then it'll end on my terms yeah. and it'll end with like a final, um, you know, declaration of love. I love, I love it for a million reasons, but a couple of things that stick out to me right now, right, as I think one of the big um, pain points for people was we as a community have been separated. We were all, yeah. we were all told to stay away from each mm -hmm. other and go into our houses. And yet here we have a brilliant example of how, okay, well, let's figure out how to be a community mm -hmm. in a different way. Um, but I also love that you said 500 people wanted to give and 300 yeah. people needed. And and that to me is so symbolic of the world at large. Like yeah. if we figured out some of these systems, yeah. how we could redistribute in a very mm -hmm. different way. So was it always in you to be a community organizer in this way? Is that Has that been in you since you were little or is that something that grew over time? Well, I always had a very like outgoing <laughs> personality. I was never shy. 
Um, I think definitely, um, you know, emigrating, coming to the U.S. at a very early age and sort of being, you know, thrown into a preschool room with, with a bunch of kids I'd never seen before helped me come out of that shell, right? If I ever even really had one. Um, but it wasn't until I was in middle school. Um, and I, and I speak about this incredible friend that I had who is still my friend. She lives in New Zealand now. Um, fiery red hair, the most beautiful, you know, soul I had ever met and still to this day. And her name is Jennifer Hyde. And she was like nobody had ever met before. Mm. You know, she was a friend that I had met in, in, in elementary school, but became really good friends with her in middle school. We were in the same like political science class or something like that. And she was just very, like, aware of the world because of the house that she grew up in with her parents always talking about, like, politics and, you know, what was happening in the world at the time, you know, whether it was current events or whether it was even then, like, global warming, which mm. wasn't, was just at the cusp of, like, being on our consciousness. We were it's talking true. about the ozone layer at that time. You know, this yeah. is, like, in the 80s, right? Yeah. And she would bring all this information to class all the time, which was like really intriguing to me. And I just found myself drawn to her. And so I would go over to her house after school. And when I would go over to her house, you know, normally you go over to like a friend's house when you're in junior high school and you're like, you know, talking about hair and boys, and <laughs> like whatever else you talk about, you know, looking at teen magazines or what have you. And she actually had like magazines for PETA and Greenpeace and all of these different organizations. Right. And we were going door to door at that time, trying to raise money to save whales and trying to organize a recycling program at the school. And through those experiences, I realized, you know, and the gift that she gave me, that seed that she planted with me that has now literally become like a huge forest, I think, is the fact that one person can make a difference. Yeah. That one person can make a difference, not it maybe not in the world, you know, that you could see but like in your community. And so the fact that we started the first recycling program at the school and that we brought Earth Day to the school was all incredibly exciting. And it felt like I was making a difference at a time when, you know, and it's interesting to say it now because I'm thinking about it, I'm like at a time when the world was really, you know, going to hell in a handbasket. But now I'm thinking, well, gosh, nothing's really changed in <laughs> no. like you know, 35 years. Well, and weirdly, I just read something the other day and I can't remember what the book was, but it was it was somebody who was writing in 1919 and they were saying, the, the world is going through a troubled time. And I was like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> maybe I'll just ease off the gas of my concern because maybe this is just the totally. world forever. Yeah. Um, but yeah. <laughs> There's a theme. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's funny you you talking about the eighties because all I tend to remember from from my school yeah. days because you and I are the same age. Yeah. Aerosols. Like I remember we were just told <laughs> yeah. not to use. It was like yes. oh, don't use aer. Oh, okay. Well, we won't use aerosols. But yeah. I mean, you look at where we're at now. Yeah. So interesting. But one thing I want to touch on. Uh, and, and you start your book with this. It's, it's an incredibly compelling start to your book, which we will talk more about in a moment. But you talk about you were at the DMV with your mom. Yeah. You've just emigrated very recently from Israel. So yeah. she isn't, uh, isn't speaking uh, English at that no. time. Um, and someone tried to kidnap you they, while she yeah. was having the, the eye test. Could you, mm -hmm. could you, I mean, yeah. th that story's unbelievable. Could you share it? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I clearly, I don't remember any of this, mm. you know, and, and it's, I actually have had like therapy to see if I like was traumatized by this incident. And I really don't feel any residual trauma. Because you were two years old. I was old. two years old, but also remember, again, I was a really friendly kid mm. and like just completely gregarious and you know, would just talk to anybody. And that might have been probably one of the reasons I was like a very kidnappable kid, to be honest right. with you, because I would just walk away with <laughs> right, whoever. Okay. Um, but yeah, my mom and I were at the DMV in Brooklyn, which is where we, um, when we left Jerusalem, we moved to Brooklyn. My father knew somebody there who could give him a job. And so that's kind of how we ended up there. And um, my brothers were already in school. You know, they're older than me. They're seven and 10 years older. So they were in school that day. My mother went to go get her driver's license and her ID and was taking her test covering one eye. And um, when she was done with her test, I was gone. I wasn't there anymore. 
And when she went out into the waiting area and was like running around frantically in the DMV, not speaking the language, um, nobody knew what she was even upset about. Like there was no, you know, no people realized that she was upset, but they they were, you know, and she just kept saying, like trying to communicate that my daughter's gone, my daughter is gone. You share in the book that she was having to like play charades yeah. with people to kind of kind yeah. of describe. I what... had really cute pigtails. So she was just constantly going pigtails and I don't, you know, mm. who knows what people thought she was saying. But in that moment, there were people that were in the waiting room that remembered her with me in the waiting room, reading, you know a book to me or what have you at the time as we were waiting for her number to be called. And they um, informed whoever, you know, was at the DMV. The 911 was called. All hell, hell had broken loose. You know, the, the police, NYPD arrived on the scene. Um, and at that time, remember, again, this is like in the 1970s. There are no, like, cameras. Mm-mm. Nobody's being filmed. Nobody's like mm-hmm. able to go back and see like what car came by and who walked yeah. away with me. And so um, my mom just thought, okay, this is it. Like she's gone. Like I'll never see my daughter again. And in the moment of franticness that she really, as she explains it now, was in just that moment of like realization that I will probably never see my daughter again this woman emerges from this chaos that's ensuing in front of the DMV and just actually comes up to my mother, grabs her hand, is like talking to her in English. My mom has no idea what she's saying. The police think she's just some crazy woman and like, you know, trying to get her away from my mother. And then the woman goes like this to my mother, like Mm. pigtails. And my mother was like, you're my person. What do you, you know, what do you need to tell me? And the woman just grabbed her and my mom just started running with her. And this woman is the good Samaritan, you know. Um, my family doesn't, hasn't kept in touch with her. It's not as easy. It wasn't as easy back in the day. You know, there were no mobile phones. You kind of lose track of people over time, right? Um, and they knew nothing about this woman, but this woman basically was one of the people sitting in the waiting room as my mother was, you know, called in to get her, her eye exam and saw this couple walking out with me that wasn't my mother. And in that split second, she had just a moment where she could think about what her response was going to be, right? Is she going to run in and try to get my mother and say, hey, somebody just walked out with your daughter? Or was she going to essentially risk her life and follow these people to see where they're taking me? Or are they putting me in a vehicle? Or are they taking me into a building? And they wound up taking me into a building that was like several city blocks away from the DMV into like a Section 8 housing complex, and um, she saw what building they went into and then proceeded to run back to the DMV to get my mother. And basically at that point, you know, dragged everybody to that building where the building was on lockdown. And they started going floor to floor, apartment to apartment to try to find me. And like on the second to last floor, as they were coming out of the elevator, when my mother was really losing hope that at that point I wasn't in the building anymore, I was in the arms of a woman playing with her hair who was like in a muumuu or like a house coat or something, you know? And I couldn't understand why my mom, I was just jovial. My mom says I was super happy and like right. really happy to see her like, hey, meet my friend, you know? Like I made a new friend. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it was incredible because every single time my mother would share this story or my family would share this story at like gatherings or it was like the shock element of like, oh, when Shelly was kidnapped when she was two, it would always be like kind of just, you know, kept on the down low. They would say it that way. And then people would be like, wait, what? Repeat that? What? When your daughter was kidnapped? And then my mother would go in and tell the story and I would listen to it. And it always was about, you know, the reaction was having empathy for my mother at the end, of course. Like, oh my God, that must have been terrible for you. How did you get through that? You know, And then they would ask me questions like, do you remember anything? And it was never about like this incredible woman. The spotlight was not on this person. I just kept coming back to this woman, you know, like what was it in her that made her in that split second decide that she was going to risk her life to save me, right? She didn't know what kind of danger Mm -hmm. or if she was following a person that could injure her or had a gun or what she was walking into. And she essentially had the agency, and that's really what the first chapter is about in the book, right? It's about this sense of agency that we all 
are born with agency. We all have free will. But do we all have that sense of that agency? Do we all, you know, are we really connected to it? And so I've been fascinated with that question my entire life. And I've been trying to really create these default modes for myself um, where um, rather than being in that fight, flight, freeze mode, which many people probably sitting in that DMV probably had that same thought, right? Yeah, and also the DMV is yeah. not one of the most high vibrational places <laughs> on the planet. Definitely you know, it's kind not. of like, oh, so yeah, you know, in the, the 1970s, oh, yeah, the linoleum exactly. floors and the fluorescent like exactly. lights, exactly, and the metal chairs. But yeah, but but I guarantee you, so many people in that moment all saw me leaving with this with mm. with this couple and was like, oh, that looks odd, and then just like went on to continue reading their magazine, you know, their yeah. Good Housekeeping or whatever they were reading, and. Um, and this woman just was like, oh, hell no. Like, this is not what's happening. I'm going to, you know, just follow follow these people. And I've just been really fascinated with that because I was like, okay, this woman, this good Samaritan who saved my life, basically moved beyond fight, flight, or freeze, which mm -hmm. we have evolutionarily over, you know, all of our existence, we've been conditioned to do this from a survival perspective. Yeah. How do I move beyond that to empathy and action? Yeah. How do I move, or the tendon befriend, as it's called, like in the mindfulness circles, right, um, from research now. But but had, I always called it empathy action. Like, how do I move into empathy action mode? And then, you know, how do I lean into that default mode? And the other question that I always ask myself is, um, which we talked about earlier, was how do I come from a place of love? Yeah. You know, how do I go into the action mode, but then also make sure that whatever the reaction is, whatever the response is, that it's coming from a place of love? I love that. And I, I think that was the most interesting thing for me about starting your book with that complete, in a way, circle of life moment. Because mm. if we look at your story from the outside, and I don't mean to... Um, position you in a certain way, but I know that that's how you'll be positioned. Oh, here's this woman who started the pandemic yeah. of love, you know, and I, and I get yeah. that. And there's a place for that storyline. And that's important. But what I loved was that you brought it right back to age two, this, this circle of life moment for yeah. you, where a good Samaritan completely impacted your life. Yeah. And and your message to all of us and your actions is is like, hey, we can all we can all do these incredibly impactful things, and of course, we impact the world. So yeah. that's why I was excited to talk to you today, um, not just about the book or about pandemic of love, but really about your journey that that I know began as you've shared mm -hmm. in in your young life, knowing that you were a a love activist, an activist in many ways. You even, you even. I'm going to share this actually. This is something that you have on your website. You say, I spent decades climbing the ladder as a corporate executive. Now I combine the pragmatic lessons I learned in business with my lifelong mindfulness and meditation practice to get positive stuff done in the world. Mm -hmm. Gun reform advocate, social justice champion, self-care coach, community organizer, meditation teacher, person who shows up for the cause. I should add mother and parent. If I believe in it, I go for it and I try to help others do the same. Mm -hmm. So this way of being has been in you since you were little, but I'm imagining that mindfulness, meditation, and your deep dive into mm -hmm. all of that really in some way strengthened the core of everything you're doing. Definitely. How did you come to that work? What, what took you into that world? Oof, I think it was, um, well, I know, it was a deep dissatisfaction with the conf the confines of the religion I grew up in, mm. right? And um, I, I love Judaism, you know, growing up in Israel, of course, like you kind of are either Jewish or you're not Jewish. Like right. it's not like you're Christian or you're Muslim. It's like you're either a Jew or you're non-Jew. Right. There's only two things you could be, right? Um, and I grew up in a family that was very religious, very orthodox, um, Sephardic, which means like Middle Eastern descent, right? Not Eastern European descent. And um, the traditions are really what drove like everything that happened in our life. You know, even when we moved here to the U.S., same. You know, my parents really like our entire life was centered around being Jewish and being part of the Jewish community. And um, that can be a really beautiful thing. But I think it can also be really stifling if you're kind of looking to expand beyond a box, 
you know? And some people are very happy being in a box and it works for them. But I have never been somebody that could be contained in any yeah. type of a box. <laughs> so um, for better, or for worse. And, um, you know, I was searching. I was like constantly searching for meaning and purpose and what's my purpose in life and you know, um, what is the meaning of all of this? Like, why are we even here? Like, I was asking those types of questions and I had, you know, I was listening to like Morrissey and I was having right. like social angst. Yeah, like, that'll do it. Like that, yes, <laughs> totally, right? You're like, I was walking around with like a catcher in the rye and like listening to Morrissey, oh, God, which I is like, yeah. I was a teenager. Totally. I was like, oh, wow. Right, so I had this like existential, this like angst of every like typical teenage, you know. Yeah. A uh, teenager at that time that was like plugged in to sort of be a nonconformist, and that's yeah. really what I was. And so, um, you know, I think the way that that translated for me was just curiosity about like, okay, I know enough about this world that I grew up in. I know enough about like the Jewish culture and about you know my heritage, et cetera. Like, I want to really learn about why other people are this way or they believe this thing, right? And so I took an opportunity when I went to college and when I went to grad school to really explore that more and to take classes that were outside of what I was supposed to be studying. Um, and I took a class in graduate school um, with Robert Thurman, mm. um, who um, people always refer to as Uma Thurman's dad, but really he's way more than that. Right. He's a founder of Tibet House, and he um, really is just the, one of the foremost experts on, you know, on Buddhism mm. in the world. Um, and I took a class with him. I, I audited a class in grad, graduate school with him, and uh, really wanted to learn more about like Eastern philosophy and religions. And um, Tibet House was like had formed a few years earlier. And he would always have flyers out and tell, tell us about like the free events that were happening. And again, remember, I was at the time like a very observant Jew. Mm. So for me to go to like Tibet House, you know, was scandalous. Right. It was like, what is Shelly doing? Like in this <laughs> idolatrous place, you right. know, like crazy. But it was, I was, I was at Columbia University, which is like on 125th and Riverside and um, on, on Broadway and Tibet house is like all the way down near Chelsea. So it's super far apart. Right. So I was like, what are the odds that somebody's going to like see me walking into Tibet house? Right. So I would venture down there once a week for a class with Sharon Salzberg. And I picked her because her name sounded Jewish. Mm -hmm. I swear that was like the reason why I picked that's class. a good reason, yeah. Because I was like, this is really interesting, like a Jewish meditation teacher. Okay, let's see what that's about. And I would go to her classes, and I have to tell you that, you know, in all my years of praying three times a day as a Jew growing up, right, that's what I used to do, uh, very formulated, wake up in the morning, say your morning prayers, in the middle of the day, stop everything, say your afternoon prayers, and then before you go to bed, you say your evening prayers. Um, and and I'm not talking about like now I lay me down to sleep. I'm mm -hmm. talking about like you like 80 pages worth of like stuff in like right. a prayer book, right? Very formulated. And sitting in her class for the first time, practicing metta, and just doing a loving kindness practice was the most transformative thing. It blew my mind open. It blew my heart open, and I was like, oh my god! Like without even really saying any words at this point that I knew in a rote manner and was able to recite, right, without even saying any words and just sitting and feeling and, like, sitting in self-awareness and, um, you know, just, just taking a sacred pause, I feel more connected to the universe than I ever have, to something. Mm. I don't know what that is, but I'm feeling, I'm feeling that. I want more of that. How do I get more of this? And so I secretly would, like, go attend her class on a weekly basis and um, I would always sit in the back and I would never say anything. And I finally just had the courage. I mustered up the courage at the end of class one day. I waited until everybody, you know, all the fans would like basically leave and tell, ask their questions. And I waited for her to start walking out. And I just followed her and I said, hi, I'm Shelly. And she's like, hi, Shelly. 
I go, I, I usually sit in the back and she's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> like, I see you. It's not that big of a class. And I'm like, you know, so it's, it's so funny to like recount it now because I just think back to that version of me and also like to how our relationship has evolved, like yeah. as a teacher and student and friends. Um, and I said to her, can I, can I ask you a question? And I'm sure she thought I had like the most profound question in the world to ask her. And I said, I looked around so that nobody would see me. And I said, are you Jewish? And she said, am I Jewish? And I said, yeah, are you Jewish? And she just, you know, in typical Sharon fashion, she giggled. She's like the most infectious laugh. And she said, ah, I'm a boo <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? What's a boo What's a jubu? Like, what? what's going on? And she said, well, you could be both. Like, you don't have to pick. Like, there's, you know, truth in both. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, you could hold both truths and duality. Like, there's, you don't have to be one thing or the other. The world is not black and white. And it's funny because I recount this story in the book, but I also have talked to her about it. And she's read the book and she wrote the afterword to the book. She doesn't remember any of this, by the way. Yeah. But for her, it was like this moment, passing yeah. moment. And for me. Lightning. Oh, it gave me yeah. permission. It gave me permission to be both, mm. right? To not have to choose, to not have to like live in hiding, to explore more and to just go deeper into this contemplative practice and learn more about, you know, meditation and then eventually about mindfulness and then, you know, um, all of the other sort of modalities that have, have stemmed from, from this contemplative practice. And how was it for your family when you were beginning to explore all of this? How was that for the, the relational side of your your connections with your family? Because I know family, yeah. I know connection is super yeah. important to you. And I also totally. know you're a rebel. So you're in, you know, so you're, and I mean that in, you're, yeah. you're a rebel leader. Yeah. So you're always going to slightly push yeah. the envelope. But how, how was that for you, especially when you were that young? Yeah. When I think we're still. Well, I was scared. I, 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 it was, again, it was easier because my parents still lived in Florida mm. and I was in New York. So it was easy to be in hiding, mm -hmm. you know, if you will. Um, and, I guess, you know, when you think about prayer, it's it's a contemplative practice, right? Yeah. So there wasn't anything, if you will, that was like out of the norm. I do remember though, that I started practicing yoga around that time too. This is now in the late 90s. Started practicing yoga and I remember telling my mom, oh, I have to go now, you know, I'm going to yoga class. And my mother was like freaked out about the fact that I was going to yoga class, right? Um, and said, what do you mean? What are you going to, what do you mean you're going to yoga? Like, that's idolatrous. It's like only Buddhists do that. And I'm like, no, it's like exercise, mom. Mm. Like it's stretching. It's not, you know, we're not praying to anything. We're just stretching like yeah. basically, you know? And so my parents, like many people, like at the time and still today, like have stigma, you know, they stigmatized meditation. They mm. stigmatized uh, things like yoga at the time, which now is so funny because it's like, oh, it's so mainstream, you know? Like it's not, it's not even something that is, but it's hard to remember and imagine and going back to the time when it really was something that was kind of like odd and weird for people to do, right? Yeah, even therapy, like my parents' yeah. generation and my parents and lots yeah. of their friends, like, you know, if you're going to therapy or counseling, yeah. there's something wrong with you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Whereas thankfully now we recognize that yeah. that helps build you, you Correct. know, that, that kind of, you know, whether you're getting that holding from a professional or, or a friend, right. that kind of inquiry builds you and, and exactly. fortifies you. Exactly, yeah. I mean, my parents, my parents kind of really, for a very long time, I would say like, really had no clue, like half of the things, 90% of the things that I was doing yeah. in my life, like yeah. growing up and even, you know, to this day, like, it's not that I don't share with my parents. It's just that they have like their own, they live in a box, right. you know, and that's a very comfortable space for them. And so sometimes I'm successful in kind of like bringing my mom out of the box a little bit and showing her my world. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes, and then she immediately goes back into her yeah. box, you know, which is, totally fine and and wonderful for her but my parents i think the the break sort of happened when i stopped keeping the sabbath mm. you know and i started to kind of wear pants again and mm. 
Um, and then when I met my, my husband, Jason, who is not Jewish, and my parents um, stopped talking to me for two years, they disowned me. Mm. You know, they basically were like, if it was a choice. Like, you're going to marry him. You're making a choice as to whether or not you want to continue um, being a part of this family. Because that's the biggest slap in the face that you mm. could possibly ever, you know, um, give us is marrying a non-Jew. And so I made that decision. You know, I was like, it's, it's, I can't believe I have to make that decision, yeah. but, you know, it's, I have to live my truth. Mm. And I want, I don't believe that religion should divide us. And I believe just in being a human, you mm -hmm. know, and like that we're all one. And, um, and I believe that this is my person. And so I'm going to explore that and be with him. And, and again, love finds a way, you know, yeah. my parents, if you, if you kind of build that wall and you make it so that it, um, there's never a way to return back, you know, you, you sort of close off and you build shields around your heart, then yeah, there's, there's a lot of people who sort of have these moments of fracturing and then that's it. It's like, that's, that's the time when my family and I went our separate ways and we, ne and we never saw them again, you know? Mm. We never talked again. And for me, I always left that door like slightly ajar and I was like, you know, they're gonna come around and yeah. they're gonna wanna see their grandson and yeah. they're going to um, eventually realize that Jason's a good human being and that he loves his their daughter and that he, you know, is a great dad and all these other things. And so um, that's exactly what happened. You know, we kind of left that door open and and made sure that it was never this like black or white, unforgivable transgression, but rather like what tools do they have to work with, mm. right? And I, I, I know, and I talk about this also in my book that my mother is, you know, when mother was born in Iraq, my mother was airlifted out of, you know, out of Baghdad into Israel at age two. She was one of 17 children and a female wow, at the time. So imagine like being a woman mm -hmm. born in Baghdad, like that's like, you're a second class citizen from mm -hmm. birth basically, mm -hmm. right? In your own family. Mm -hmm. um, and so now all of a sudden my mother had this opportunity to like go to school and learn to read and do all these things because she was in like last in that, one of the last in the pecking order. And so she had this opportunities that her sisters, who some of them were married off as young as 12 years old, if you could believe it. 12. 12 years old. So, and we're like having kids by like 13, 14, 15 years old, wow. right? Wow. So I think about that a lot. You know, I, I kind of think about that. I think about my grandmother a lot, um, you know, who, who really had to endure a lot of pain and suffering and, and live within um, the rules of the societal rules um, and traditions that she was born into. And I think about the fact that, you know, maybe my grandmother only had like a, a, a hammer and a chisel and that was her toolbox, if you will, to, to keep going with this metaphor. And my mother has like a drill, you know, not a drill, yeah. a screwdriver. Yeah. And I'm sitting here it's so easy for me because I had all these opportunities to explore and to go to school and to take classes with Robert Thurman and to right. do all these things. And I have like a power drill. And so it's so easy for me to sit there and like, you know, be building this enormous, like great complex structure and be like, what's taking you so long over mm -hmm. there? You know, like, come on, let's go, you know? And, and it's easy for us. I think we all kind of operate from, from that lens very often. So I try to really... Um, take that lens off very often and see the world through my grandmother's eyes very often. And then I see my mom completely differently and I'm so proud of her and I'm proud of the woman she is and, you know, the life that she was able to give us and um, just how far she's come. And, you know, and so yeah, my book is dedicated to her because really if it, where would I be if it wasn't for her sacrifice and her strengths and her ability to, um I think, you know, go beyond, beyond what she was taught, you know, that was very black and white, which is incredible. Beautiful. Um, 
If we may talk a little about like one of the most striking chapters of your life, as well as the book, is where you where you talk about in your late twenties you lost your eyesight, and mm. one of I'm I'm paraphrasing, but you talk about how you realized in losing your vision. Mm. Uh, that the mind sees and that yeah. it, 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 that loss opened up a different world for you. Yeah. Yeah. Please share some of that with us because that's really extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I realized, yes, that the mind could be blind, that even if you have, whether even if you have full vision, yeah. your mind could be completely blind. And I still, I know many people are like that today, right? We all do. Um, I, I, you know, was going through a really horrible divorce. Um, not that there's really a divorce, I think, that's ever mm -hmm. not horrible, right? Yeah. So I was going through a very challenging time in my life, um, and I felt very lost. Um, and it was just stressful. I was living in a very toxic environment, um, you know, as most people who are going through separation or divorce are trying to figure out how to... Um, uncouple, right? Especially yeah. if you have children and you're like trying to figure out who's getting this pot that you didn't even want in the first place and this sofa and these four walls. And so in living together but apart during this like time, right? It was just like a very kind of heavy environment to be in. And um, it was very stressful for me. I had left my daily regimen of meditation, you know, um, because again, like you you get stressed out. So you're like, rather than doing the things that are good for you, you sort of do the exact opposite, yeah. right? You're like, you're, you're at the point where you just stall and you do nothing, which is the worst thing you can do. And um, I woke up one morning and um, I just literally couldn't see. I was blind. I, I had a whiteout. Um, that's the best way for me to describe it. Uh, white blood cells rushed into my eyes. My brain was telling my eyes there was an infection that wasn't actually there. And they be had become so engorged that I couldn't actually blink them away or see through them. They had no way of getting back out, circulating back out. Um, and my eyes were also at that time, because of the heaviness of all of these, um, these white blood cells in my eyes, started to leak, the capillaries started to burst, started, started to leak in the back of my, um, my eye cavity. And so that's from a very technical perspective that I found out what was going on. But at the time when I woke up, I had no idea what was going on. And I was like, I had a two-year-old son who I was trying to get to school and I had to go to work that day and just to live, live my life as best as I could given everything that I was going through. And, you know, I really had to heavily rely on a community and on my friends and, you know, just the, the kindness of Good Samaritans mm -hmm. even along the way, right, to sort of help me emerge from this literal dark period of my life. Um, and when I finally was able to, you know, have my eyesight restored due to, like, injections and a few procedures, um, the gift right? The gift of being able to see mm. something that we don't think about. No. We really, we take it for granted every single day was something that I swore that I would never take for granted again, right? And I, the things that I pick up on on a daily basis in terms of like stop, when you say stop and smell the flowers, like I'm like stopping to look at the way that the light you know, hits the dew on the petal of the flower, like that so level good. of intensity, right? Yeah. Um, and then I'll call everybody else in to like come see it, <laughs> much to the chagrin of my husband, who's now like, all right, enough with the dew on the flower petal. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's a gift, actually. I've come to view it as a gift. Um, I love, I quote this poem uh, from Mary Oliver. Mm. Um, and, you know, in her poem, she writes... Um, somebody had once given me a box of darkness and it took me years to realize that it too was a gift. Mm. And that is like exactly how I feel about this box of darkness that life has given me, right? That um, at this point, you know, over 20 years of, or close to 20 years of struggling and so many procedures and, um, just injections and eye doctor visits and specialists, et cetera, et cetera, 
um, I've come to learn that, you know, there's a very real possibility that I will be blind very soon. I'm already blind in my left eye. So I've been dealing with that for the last two years. And I'm like emotionally prepared for that. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm at the point where I think like, oh, you know, I could, it's not that I'm not trying to like stave off blindness, sure. you know, I'm doing everything that I can do. Like I'm eating, I changed my diet, I changed my lifestyle. Yeah. Like I do all of these holistic things, of course, but I'm also like a realist, you know? And I think to myself, like, what's the gift in this darkness? What, and, and really, it also relates back to when we think about like this moment of fear and pandemic of love. And mm -hmm. it's like, what is the gift when there is a dark moment in our life, when there's a dark moment in the world, and oh my God, we don't have to look very far. There are mm -hmm. so many dark moments in the world. Where's the gift? What is the gift that can emerge from that dark moment, right? And I was talking to my friend Rabbi Steve Leader yesterday. Yesterday was like National Grief Awareness Day or something like that. And he was talking about, you know, the the, the phrase in, in, the, in the Bible that says, I was walking through the valley of death or in the shadow, no, the valley of the shadow of death or something like that, how it translates in, from Hebrew into English. And he says, it's so interesting because the word shadow is in there. Mm. And it's like the shadows of death, right? Even then, in that darkest moment, there couldn't be a shadow without light. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So it's like leading us towards light. And like, I think we have to be the, the carriers of that light, whether we can see, whether we can walk, whether we can talk, whether we're, you know, God forbid in a wheelchair and we have ALS, mm -hmm. whatever. You see so many individuals who are like a beacon of light and have way more vision than those of us who take our five senses. Yeah. Let's not even get into six senses, yeah, yeah, but yeah. five senses for granted on a daily basis. So I, you know, I really do view it as, as a gift that that moment happened to me, especially at a time when I was going through this like really transformative, you know, liminal state. And I talk about it as a black box, mm. right? This black box that I was um, really encased in where I didn't know what I would emerge out of, you know, whether I would emerge out. Was it, a, was it the darkness of, of the tomb or was it a darkness of the womb? as Valerie Kaur talks about, you know? And, I, and I'm happy to say that most of us who are in that darkness are oftentimes really in a womb. We're not in a tomb. There's, there's this emergence that's waiting to happen if we just like lean into it. But it's so true, isn't it, that whatever that darkness is for any of us, whether it manifests in form like it did for you, or whether it manifests in emotion, devastation, grief, whatever it is, mm. it's so true that it takes coming through it some years to be able to look back at it and mm. s see the perspective of, of what what the significance of it was. Even if in the moment you can find some light or some, yeah. some I won't even say positive in it, but some learning in it in the moment, it really does take seeing seeing it in the context of our life as to, as to what it gave us or, or how, it's, how it steered us differently. I think, I think you're right about that. But I also think that Many of us think we have to wait a long time, mm -hmm. right? To True. be like reflective about that True. period. And oh, look what look what I did accomplish 20 years ago. And I'm more of an advocate for saying like, no, like you can actually lean into that now. Mm. Like I'm going through a difficult moment at this time. And, you know, we chatted about this, yeah. you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm losing a family member I care very much about who's in hospice and, um, you know, we're, we're grappling with a lot of different emotions right now. And I'm fighting my way through it, really, like, getting, it's messy. Mm. It's such a messy thing to have to go through. But I'm looking at it not thinking, like, oh, I'll reflectively, like, think back about this in a year from now. But rather, like, what can I do at this moment to find the light in this moment? There's love in this moment. There has to be, right? There's a human being that I love so much that has built a legacy and given so much to this world. And so how do I lean into that instead of leaning into this like fear and, mm -hmm. and sadness and grief and all of that too, 
but like, how do I make sure that there's a balance between the two? And and you sharing that, and even really what we've been talking about for the last five minutes, one of my favorite chapters you have is sustainable self-care. And why, I mean, self-care is such a big topic. Mm. It's a very misused topic. And I'm, yes. I, I took a few of your sentences sure. and put them all together um, from the same page in the chapter, but Self-care has been hijacked by corporations as a way to sell beauty and wellness. <laughs> the reality is that authentic self-care is unsexy, hard work. Authentic self-care is for everyone, but it can be hard because it's not a quick fix. Right. Now, I've just taken three sentences and put them together. You really elaborate not only why we have to pay attention to our self-care, but you kind of walk through why it's hard. Yeah. And you even you even alluded to it a moment ago when you were saying in the middle of your divorce you were yeah. you were too stressed to meditate. Yeah. So I think it's normal for any of us to, as you share in the chapter, you talk about well we'll go for self care that's the quick fix, you know <laughs> yeah. the self care that's going to give us two hours worth of relief rather than building the habits and doing the right. practices that we need to cultivate right. more resilience. Yeah. And and I mean your your whole how radical self care can change the world. Right. So if us caring for ourselves is what creates this resilience that we can then mm. be of use, service, goodness to others, as well as those in our immediate life. I mean, that that mm. to me has always been the goal. So Yeah, no, definitely. Well, the best version of the world starts with the best version of us. Mm -hmm. And I think where, you know, if there's one takeaway for anybody watching this, right, when we talk about self-care is that it is not an individualistic pursuit. I know the word self is there. And so... It is misleading in that sense because we think, oh, self, so it's talking about the I. But really, self-care has to be a communal pursuit in order for it to work, in order for us to be held accountable, in order for us to be able to remove obstacles, like very real obstacles that are in our life, right? So at that time that I was going through this divorce and going through a tough period and didn't find time to meditate, right? Or to go work out or to go for a walk because I had every excuse in the book, right? Like, oh, I'm, I'm sad or, oh, I'm dealing with caring for my son or I don't have time for myself or I'm dealing with this or that. And it's so easy to fall back and lean on those excuses. But when you have a community of care, a safety net that is formalized, right? That's the key. Then those individuals can really help to remove those obstacles that are in your way. If you're a single mom, they can maybe give you back two hours a week for mm. yourself. If you're, um, you know, um, just struggling with putting food on the table, it's somebody that can drop a casserole off or a lasagna like on Wednesday nights. You know, there's just so many different ways that we can all um, gift each other with ways that we. Um, you know, can fulfill a need and allow people to gift us, right, on a continuous basis. And so it's this hearkening, and I talk about this as well in the book, it's this hearkening to a time period that I'm sure your parents talked about, certainly my parents and grandparents talked about, is this hearkening to this period called back in the day. Mm -hmm. You know, this simpler time when we knew our neighbors. We like not like hey that's Bob next door, mm -hmm. but really like hey that's Bob and Bob's wife has cancer and the kids are, you know, struggling in school and um so we've been whatever. mowing the lawn and taking some casserole Correct. and you know all those exactly. things totally. Exactly. And and nowadays it's like hey Bob, how you doing? Great. Mm. You know, oh, I see you got new clippers, you know. Like if you're lucky. It. Exactly, right. If you're, if you're lucky. lucky. Exactly. Some neighbors don't want to speak to you. And that's, you know, and that's not even personal. It's just like, oh, right. I didn't move here to have to talk to you, you know. Exactly. Depending on where you live. And yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, we feel like we're so connected in this, like, you know, very media rich slash, mm. you know, technological world. Mm. But in fact, like, we're the most disconnected that we've ever actually been mm. because it's all like, you know, surface level connections. It's not like these deep connections where we're really showing up for each other. So the 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 idea here is to continue to show up for ourselves and to show up for others. Not to first show up for ourselves and then when we feel better, show up for others, but actually in the showing up for ourselves first and then immediately showing up for others, we're essentially helping ourselves too. And so I just like, it's so important for people to understand that the only way for us to actually, you know, move past 
this moment in time in our society is to come together as communities and show up for each other. And we've been seeing glimmers of that. You know, we've seen it during certainly the pandemic. We see it after every huge cataclysmic event. Always. Right? Always. Right. It's, it's unbelievable how communities rally around in the middle of disasters. And then what happens to them, though? Exactly. That's go the point. back into the conditioned right. way that we're... But this is why, for me... Yes. And, and I just want to... With, with Pandemic of Love, yeah. just going back to your very concrete example of something that you started, but then everybody wanted to be part of. Yeah. Just some of the numbers. Um, so since March 2020, you've connected one and a half million people and $52 million in transactions. No funds go through Pandemic of Love and the organization has no overhead. It is all just people helping each other. And, and, yeah. and what I love about this in my work and, and in, the, in the field I work in, there is a lot of talk about how the systems need to change. But here we have a system <laughs> that birthed yeah. in the middle of the system. Yeah. It's like the flower that breaks through the pavement, regardless of the concrete. Yeah. And, and, and I think that is testament to not only it what is. you started, but how many people were like, yeah. oh, I want to be part of this. I want to get back to community. Yeah. We talk about, you know, yes, we have to dismantle systems. Mm -hmm. And my question always is, what are you replacing it exactly. with? Exactly. Like, yeah. great, let's tear everything down. Mm -hmm. Burn the entire yeah. house down. Yeah. What are you building instead of that? Do you know? Like, you know, have you, have you engaged in anything that could possibly work? And so this really, I think, is mutual aid it's 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 the rally cry for you know the fact that mutual aid is a system you know one of many that can be um and should be really a part of every community in this world totally every community and it can be and i would say that it also you know is important for us to pause and like really lean into asking ourselves this as human beings who usually step up when there is a crisis, right? When there's a when there's a storm or when we have to airlift refugees or, you know, um, when the pandemic first happened, right? The question is, you know, if your neighbor was good enough to feed during the pandemic, why weren't they good enough to feed before? Mm -hmm. And why aren't they good enough to feed after? Mm -hmm. And so if we can kind of really answer those questions and think about the fact, well, wait a minute, there is no good answer mm. to that question. How do we then lean into creating these sustainable systems that I think can build true equity and create a real redistribution of wealth and create a society where everybody has enough? Brilliant. So just to wrap this amazing conversation up, thank you, by the way, for sharing so much of yourself and your story. I, I want to talk just about how this book came to be born mm -hmm. because you share that you had been journaling since you were nine years old. Yeah. And that, <laughs> I still have it. Yeah, and that, and that this book wasn't something you were planning to do, mm -hmm. but it came out of your... I think you said a year of journal posts that you'd been creating yeah. kind of for yourself, but you've been sharing them online and yep. people had really responded. Mm -hmm. And then this book was the next the next step. How did it how did all that kind of come to fruition? Um, so I was sort of thrust into this community organizer teacher role, right? As a meditation teacher for this community that really started with 12 of my friends on a beach in Hollywood that then grew into, over that five-year period, into a community of about 15,000 meditators. And um, I realized that every week when I got in front of people, before I would actually sit down and do a guided meditation, they would expect me to say something. Like, people would be looking at me like, all right, you know. Well, all right, go ahead, say something brilliant, you know? And we No pressure. Yeah, exactly. Like you're like, you know, I'm at the pulpit and I'm like sweating bullets. I'm like, oh my God, every week, how do like rabbis and like, you know, ministers do this on a weekly basis? And so every week I would do like a little Dharma talk and I would draw upon like, you know, just ancient wisdom tradition, et cetera, and tell these like stories that are parables and they're all great, but I realized that the Sunday mornings that I would actually like talk about my own, you know, in Yiddish we say mishigas, mm -hmm. which is like my own nuttiness, yeah. like my own craziness, yeah. or I would like, 
you know, occasionally throw Jason under the bus, you know, (laughs) (laughs) only occasionally. But like really just share about myself and like the struggles that I had gone through and that I was going through yeah. and and um, everything, you know, that I that that was happening in that moment in the world, I realized that people were connecting to that. And they were looking to me as a teacher to just be a real person, not like somebody who has everything all figured mm-hmm. out. Because nobody does. Right. Actually. But so yeah. many people, I think, in our industry, I will say this. I think they they have this aura. They they put out this like perception. The, I I refer to it as the guru projection. Yes. And some people will project the aura of guru, right. and then the people who follow them will also get in, entangled in that relationship. Correct. And it becomes like a feedback loop. Yes. Between the person who wants a guru and the person who wants to be a guru. Correct. It's very interesting. It is. It's so interesting, and it's 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 interesting because I also talk about how when people used to say to me like, oh, this is you know, they would introduce me, this is my guru. And I'd be like, ah, <laughs> you know, no. And so I came up with this term called guru. Like, oh, you know, cool. you're your own guru, yep. right? So that's the term. And so um, so I would just, now everybody would walk around in our community and say like, oh, you're my guru and I'm your guru and we're just yeah. all gurus. And that's really, you know, what it's about. But I realized that, you know, it was really just through being a real person and sharing that like, yeah, I have, all of these problems and I'm working through them. And the difference, the only difference at this moment between you and me is that I have tools mm. and I'm sharing these tools with you mm-hmm. because these tools are helping me work through everything I'm going through, which is very similar to what you're going through because we're going through this human experience, yeah. right? And we can't avoid it. And so um, so I started to share um, some of my journal entries um, online, just like a couple paragraphs a day, you know, talking about sadness and grief and vulnerability and anger and rage and my temper issues, um, you know, because I do have that Israeli gene. So I'm, I'm prone to, to, to that. But, you know, I just basically lean into that and um, talk about the things that aren't as sexy and that people, I think, in my position may not want to admit, you know, or talk about. And so that resonated with people. And so I said, you know, I'm going to start doing this every day. I'm going to do it every morning for 365 days and see what happens. And at the end of that process, I had a like, you know, just a body of work <laughs> that I was like, wow, this is pretty incredible. So I started to really just, you know, kind of put it in these little uh, silos of like, okay, this is talking about vulnerability and this is talking about empathy and and um, and then eventually started putting that out to um, to friends who were you know literary agents or had published a book before and were like you should really do something with this. Yeah. So it was Sharon actually who pushed me into publishing a book and helped me find my writing coach and helped me find a literary agent. And so kudos to her, you know, for always pushing me in the right direction. Beautiful. Well. It, I mean, it's a beautiful book, and I know it's going to do incredibly well. And I know, I feel it will do the same thing that I feel you do in your life and Pandemic of Love has done, which is continues to seed this energy. So I just salute you. I think Thank you're you. brilliant. I think you're fantastic. I love your vulnerability because that's real. And so the whole the whole picture is 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 what we need. So thank you for being you and for impacting the world the way that you do and for coming and sharing so much of that with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for the space that you've created and thanks for your platform. No, oh, thank you. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. You can find all links to Shelley's work and also her book, Sit Down to Rise Up, in the show notes underneath the video or the audio version. And thanks for tuning in today. Have a great week and we'll see you next time on Impact the World. Hello, I'm Lee. I'm an intuitive and a channeler, and I've been channeling now for 23 years. And the information and the energy that my guides have underscored my life with throughout those years has been very transformative for me. 
And for those of you who followed my work over the past 17 years or so, I know for many of you too. As I was visioning and doing a lot of deep diving this summer, really talking to my guides a lot through the month of August, they gave me the name Initiation as the name for a series of messages that they want to bring. Initiation will begin on October the 27th and every Wednesday, live from this studio, I'll be channeling for approximately an hour to 75 minutes. I have asked my dear friend and sound healing collaborator, Devor Bozik, to create some original music encoded with planetary frequencies, but also frequencies that relate to our body that can run underneath each of the channels. And my guides disease have given us a written message about what initiation will be and what will take place during it. You can find that and all information about this experience on the course page. In between each of the live broadcasts, I will do a special calibration video that helps us at a human level calibrate to and integrate and absorb what each channeled message will be. This is different to anything I've ever done before. I can't wait to bring it to you and neither can my team. If you feel to be with us for initiation or you want to just get a sense of it, please visit the link below this video to learn more and to feel more and to see if it resonates with you. If so, we'd love to have you with us.